Psalm 90 says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I have to admit uh, something about myself here. I'm kind of a sucker for the uh, end of the year review show. You know, uh, every year at the end of the year, uh, whether it's CNN or uh, the, VH1 used to do one of these, and uh, different, different news outlets, different networks, they'd always do this year in review where you kind of look back at the previous year, and uh, I'm sure I'm a couple of weeks late now because we're two weeks into January already, but uh, these shows, you know, they kind of would do the wrap-ups of 2017 and, and a look back of all of those things. And always included in those shows, there's a, there's a look back at, uh, at famous people that we lost over the last year. And uh, you, think about, you think about the brevity of life when, when you see that. People that were at one time larger than life, huge figures that, that were maybe famous, uh, they're gone. And, and it makes you think about your own life and how quickly it can pass. I think about... Um, Tom Petty passed away this year. Now, as a kid that grew up, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, Tom Petty was a big figure in my life when it came to music. But um, even Chris Cornell, Chris Cornell passed away. You guys don't know who Chris Cornell is. A 90s kid here again, I'll admit it. He was the lead singer of Soundgarden. He was the one of the Seattle rock stars 
that used to used to kind of comment on the people that would commit suicide and say, "That's a that's a coward's way out. You shouldn't do that." And uh, ended up committing suicide this year. Or you think about people who live to a ripe old age, like uh, like good old Hugh Hefner, died in his 90s this year, had the world by the tail, all those pretty girls, Playboy Mansion. But that didn't stop his life from coming to an end, did it? I think about uh, the most significant figure in my life to pass away this year. I, I, didn't, I didn't lose any close relatives. I guess I'll say thankfully I didn't lose any close relatives this year. But uh, you may know uh, the author and pastor and seminary professor and many other things, father, grandfather, husband, uh, R.C. Sproul passed away just in the last couple of months. And uh, he had written many books that I'm sure some of us are familiar with. The Holiness of God, probably the most significant of his works uh, in my life personally. And um, had the privilege as a college and seminary student to meet R.C. Sproul. Uh, got to know some people that were close to him and had some strange connections there. But uh, this was a man who, who devoted his life to the Bible and defending it and preaching it, and teaching it. He had, I think appropriately, uh, every month an article in Table Talk. Table Talk is the magazine that's put out by the ministry started by R.C. Sproul. Matt's got a copy. You can, you can see it right here. And the title of R.C.'s article every month was called Right Now Counts Forever. And that title means something. Right now counts forever. So I think about time, get sentimental about time, think about people who have passed, think about the last year. And then we find a psalm like this. I think very appropriate for a new year, very appropriate for a time in our life of renewal, of thinking about the year to come. And we find in this psalm some pretty remarkable statements like... Uh, Teach us to number our days. <laughs> That's what it says in verse 12. Teach us to number our days. Death does that. Those year-end reviews shows do that. And the scriptures do that. So that's what, that's what we want to do for a little while this morning. We want to think about the number of our days in light of who our God is. So let's look at this psalm. I, I want to mention a few things about it that I think are features that apply to the whole thing, maybe that will help us understand it better. First of all, uh, the scripture, the superscript says, a prayer of Moses. And somebody says, well, which Moses are we talking about? Uh, the man of God, okay? So if there's any confusion as to which Moses we're talking about, if there was a Moses in the Bible that would be defined as the man of God, it would be the one that we know, of course, from the book of Exodus and from the law, what's called the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law, the law given through Moses. Moses was that man who was used by God to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. He was that man that was used by God to author the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, sometimes we call them. He was the man that was used by God to... Uh, encapsulate and to write down God's law when it came to things like uh, the ritual sacrifices that were connected to temple worship. 
He was the man used by God to talk about the, the ceremonial laws that would distinguish the nation of Israel from all of the other nations. And he was certainly the man used by God uh, to, to talk about God as Redeemer and to remind the people of God who the true God of Israel was. And uh, what we have in this psalm is what is said to be a prayer of Moses. Uh, we should just be thankful, just, just as a side note, we should be really thankful anytime we have an opportunity to peer into the prayer life of someone that has been used by God, like Moses. And here we have the opportunity to kind of look over his shoulder and see what he prays and how he prays. And I think in this sense, obviously, we, we would count this as Scripture, but we, we, we want to imitate him. We want to see what he's got to say. And I think these are very important words here. So this is the, the prayer of Moses. The second thing that I would say, just by way of a literary feature in this psalm, is that it's not an easy one to outline. Uh, I have to confess, I, I'm very Western in my thinking. And I like logical outlines and bullet points, and I like parity, and I like balance. So if you've got one point over here, you need to have another point over here. And if you have two illustrations here, then you need to have two illustrations over here. You want, I, like, I just like it. That's the way my brain works. Um, I blame Western society for it. But not so much with Moses. Moses, uh, this psalm isn't an easy one to divide because every verse says everything. Every verse has intertwined in it uh, really most of the points that are trying to be made here. And I think the big points of the psalm, if, if I could narrow it down to three, the big points of the psalm would be uh, the eternity of God. God's relationship to time. Uh, then the temporariness, I know it's not a great, not a great title here, but the temporariness of man, or our relationship to time. So we've got God's relationship to time. We've got our relationship to time. And then we've got the glory of God <laughs> as a bow over the whole thing. So God, how does he relate to time? How does he relate? And, and, I, don't, and I can't, I was going to say, I, I'd love to be able to say uh, verse 1 through whatever represents God and his relationship to time and the next section represents man and his relationship to time. But it doesn't exactly work like that. So uh, I don't have good stanzas. I don't have a good division. But I think you see it all almost in every verse. But listen to what Moses says here in verse 1. And he's clearly describing God's relationship to time when he says this. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth, and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So what is God's relationship to time? Well, you'll notice before the mountains were brought forth, so before anything was created, and before anything was made, before this world existed, before, dare I say, time existed, if, if that sentence makes any sense. It really doesn't, does it? Say before time. Before time existed, outside of time, there was God, and Moses says this, he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I can almost wrap my mind around the idea of God to everlasting, so he's always going to be there. But I can't even begin to wrap my mind around from 
everlasting. You are God. And yet, that's, that's where God is. That's God's relationship to time. Moses will go on and say in verse 4, A thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Uh, Moses, he has to resort to human language to describe God because human language is the only, it's the only tool we have. We don't have an appropriate language or an appropriate way of thinking to even wrap our minds around God. But, but Moses would say that God, when he looks at a thousand years, he doesn't see a thousand years the way we do. We, we think of a thousand years as a long time. None of us are going to live a thousand years at least in the condition we're in now. Maybe, maybe we'll get some... Uh, I gotta, don't turn that way. Okay. So maybe we'll get some resurrected bodies or we'll get some bodies that are transformed that will allow us to be around for a thousand years. But the way we exist now, the world as it exists today, the bodies that we're in today, they're not going to be around a thousand years. You think about a thousand years, a thousand years is a long time. Our nation has not been in existence for a thousand years. And we think of our nation as, as, as one of the most stable and immovable things. It's, it's not. It's like it was born yesterday, comparatively speaking. Our world was born yesterday, comparatively speaking, to God. And that's the point. It isn't that God is forgetful or that God has a hard time recalling the events of yesterday or a thousand years ago. It's that He has such a relationship to time that a thousand years is like a, just a memory. It's just a, a fleeting moment. And so, when we think about the last year, or the next year, or the next 30 years, or the next 70 years, or whatever we are. We are insignificant when we stand next to this great God. Think about what the psalm says uh, about man's relationship to time. Verse 3, it says, You return man, that is, God returns man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man. So we see right here, man's life, man's span, man's existence is temporary and fleeting. Moses would say, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. Not only is man's relationship to time a quick and brief one, I think we see very clearly here that God stands above the universe as the one who directs our lifetime. Uh, our lives begin and end at God's appointed time. God is the one who stands as the author of you and I, and He is the one who stands as the one who will bring us into being and bring us to an end when that time comes. It isn't a comfortable thought to think about. In fact, I think we probably try to do everything we can to avoid thinking about God that way or about thinking of, of ourselves that way. But this is certainly what the, what the Bible teaches. Our days are numbered. Our days aren't just numbered by nature. They're not just numbered uh, as a matter of course or as a matter of consequence. Our days are quite literally numbered by the appointment of this God who sits above all time. And so, 
He would go on to say, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Who's they? All of mankind. That's right. Like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and is withered. Our grass, uh, it, it was doing great in April. It's not doing very great right now. It's uh, kind of brown and withered and not much to it. That's, that's the lifespan of a man or of a human, of a woman, in light of God's eternity. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. You see, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't just an accident that our lives are brief and fleeting. Our lives are brief and fleeting in relationship to who we are and our sinfulness, and our nature. Again, we, we don't like to think about this. We would much prefer to think of ourselves as immortal. Uh, I'm going to live forever. We like those things, you know. We like that loud summer song that you, that you turn up in the car when you roll the windows down and it's uh, 85 degrees out. Man, that sounds really nice right now. Um, that song that you turn up and it's like, we're going to live forever, you know. That's, that's how you feel. But the, but the reality is, we live in a world that has fallen, a world that is broken, a world that has been marred by sin, a world that is cursed, a world where people die, a world where sin makes us sick and wrecks our families and our marriages and our lives and our relationships. We live in a world where we're going to die because of sin. Every one of us. The scripture goes on and it says, um, <clears throat> verse 10, the years of our life are 70. I, I say, uh, some of us, some of us won't, won't see 70. But as an average, the years of our lives are 70 or even by reason of strength. So like if you have an exceptionally long life, you might get 80. This is still pretty much the truth. This is still pretty much the truth of us. Yet your span is but toil and their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So Moses says, uh, our lives are brief. Our lives are coming to an end. Your wrath is going to sweep us all away. Moses has a very realistic picture. A very honest picture of our relationship to this eternal God. This God that stands above time and space. This God that creates everything. And I would just ask, do we have a realistic, honest assessment of our relationship to this God? It's not easy to do. It's not pleasant to do. But the truth is, every one of us in this room, myself included, Moses, the man of God included, Every one of us comes into this world broken, sinful, in need of a Savior. Every one of us comes into this world facing the reality that we will be touched by sin, that our sin will bring an end to us, and that 
this world is a place of suffering. Now look, we've had blessings this year. Some of us, some of us have added new family members. Some of us have, uh, we've added, I got to baptize my son this year. That was, that was a cool thing to do this year. I've had some good experiences. You've had some good experiences. We've had blessings this year, no doubt. And I, and I don't want to, to make this sound all like, uh, like there's nothing pleasant in life. There are a thousand things more than we can even give voice to that have been pleasant and, 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 and acts of mercy and acts of kindness that have come to us from God this year. But the truth is, all of those acts of mercy and all of those blessings and all of those things that have made life good, even though we're dying, those are things that God has done out of mercy to give us hope. What we deserve, the default setting, is misery. See, the real question that, that people ought to ask, people say, uh, like, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that's like uh, pretty much the oldest philosophical and religious question that people ask. Or uh, if you frame it another way, you, you put God on trial and you say, why would a good God allow suffering in the world? Or, or, or you would say, um, why does God let good people suffer? That's another way to ask the question. But it's really the same question. But see, that question, it comes from the presupposition that there are good people. It comes from the presupposition that what we are is good people. And that what we deserve is to be blessed and to be happy. But that's not the starting point of the Bible. Look, I know that what I'm saying here, it isn't popular. I'm not going to be on Oprah I'm not going to be invited to Oprah to, to make this speech. Uh, politicians will never admit this to you. The, the people on television, th there's not going to be any shows where they extol the sinfulness of man and how we come into the world broken and sinful. But this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we come into the world as sinners and that our default setting is misery. And that what we deserve because of what we are and what we have done is eternal punishment. And so the real dilemma that the Bible tries to answer isn't the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The real question that the Bible tries to answer is, how can a just God have mercy on sinners? How can a just God bless people that don't deserve it? Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the dilemma. And the answer is the reason that good things happen to bad people. And the reason that our lives aren't snuffed away much shorter. And the reason that we're not just dead as soon as we come into existence is because God is Kind and long-suffering and loving and patient and a redeemer and the kind of God that looks at us and has mercy and says, I want to redeem this people for myself. But it isn't for a second because we deserve it. You have got to reset your worldview if you think the world or God or anyone else owes you anything. 
What the world owes you, what God owes you is misery. And yet, in spite of that, He has given us 70 or 80 years. In spite of that, He has given us sunshine and family and kindness and marriage and comedy. We had some comedy. Come ye yinners. That's comedy. You guys missed that? That was pretty good stuff. The fact that we can laugh, the fact that we have delights in the world is evidence that God is kind. But what we want to do is we want to shape this thing where if, if there's a bad day, we say, well, God is a mean old God. Well, if we started from the presupposition that we were good and we deserved the best, then absolutely. If that's your starting point, Christianity's not going to work for you. I'll just tell you now. It's not going to work for you. You're going to hate what the Bible has to say to you. Because the Bible is not going to affirm how good you are. The Bible is not going to affirm how deserving you are of good things. The Bible is going to affirm that you are a sinner and that I am a sinner and that we need a Savior. But the Bible is also going to affirm that God is that Savior and that Christ came into the world to, to redeem us. But listen how Moses goes on to pray. And this is, this is the good stuff here. But see, the good stuff doesn't have any context if we don't talk about the bad stuff. The, we, Christ came into the world, and that's good news. And He sent His disciples into the world to preach good news. But that good news doesn't mean anything if it's not said in the right context. And the right context is a dying world that's cursed. That baby that was born in Bethlehem that came into the world ultimately to be a sacrifice for sin, that story doesn't make a lot of sense if everything was ducky. So he says, <clears throat> verse 12, teach us to number our days that we, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to think through this exercise of numbering our days and to realize our days are numbered. Our days are numbered because of sin. And Scripture says, verse 13, he prays, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. He's saying, fix this, God. Fix this broken world. Fix this broken world where there is sin. Fix this broken world where there is death. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Establish the work of our hands. Listen to how he prays. Teach us the number of our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's where the heart of wisdom begins with an understanding that our days are numbered. He says, return. Show yourself. Don't leave the world in this broken state. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Now, now notice the presupposition here. Here's another presupposition. Moses doesn't tell us in this psalm what he knows about God. But what he had learned about God is that God is a redeemer. 
when God passed before him, you know, you know this episode where uh, Moses wants to look upon God and God says, uh, you can't look on me and live because I'm holy. But he kind of passes before Moses and um, he kind of lets him see the back. And, and again, uh, this is where human language falls apart. I don't know what this is. One of these days, like when I get to have my Q&A session in heaven, I, I, I'm really excited about this Q&A session. I don't know if it's going to be a Q&A session. But I think I'm going to get the answers to the questions. And one of the questions I have is, what happened with that deal? I want to, can I, like, is there a rewind or something where we can see this? I'd love to see this thing happen. But when he passes in front of Moses, he says something. He says his name. You know, he says, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Compassionate and gracious God. And he talks about showing mercy to thousands and forgiving. So when God revealed his true essence to Moses, like when Moses was allowed to look upon God, Whatever that means. His takeaway from that was the I am, the, the I am that I am, Yahweh, God, in his essence, is compassionate and gracious. And he shows mercy to thousands and he forgives sinners. That's what Moses knows about this God. He knows that our life is brief. He knows that we're passing away. But he also knows that God is a redeemer. And so he says this about God. Or to God. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Because he, because he knows that God is a God with steadfast love. And that's good news. He loves us. He is merciful to us. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've done anything to deserve it. Not because we've been good enough. Not because, like, uh, like uh, Al Franken's act on Saturday Night Live, we're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That, that's not why God it has steadfast love towards us. God has steadfast love towards us because He is that God who is in His essence a forgiver of sinners. Because we have a God who has steadfast love, we can rejoice and be glad all of our days. He says, make us, verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. And then he prays that God would, would prosper the work of His hands and the work of his hands in Moses' day probably meant the establishment of the nation of Israel. But more than that, it meant the establishment of the worship of the one true God throughout all generations in the world. And so here's a couple of takeaways, if, if we don't have takeaways already. First of all, first of all, God is above and more important than everything else. I know that this is pretty obvious. This is one of those duh moments. But when we talk about presuppositions, and I hear people talk about God, even in churches, I think they miss the point. In case you missed it, God is the most important being in the universe. Again, <laughs> duh, right? God is the most important being in the universe. But there's a corollary to that. 
Therefore, you and I are not. You and I are not the most important beings in the universe. God is. Second, your life is coming to an end. Your days are numbered. Your significance in the history of the world is limited. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. A hundred years from now, Tom Petty will be trivia. Chris Cornell will be trivia. Hugh Hefner will be trivia. But my brother R.C. Sproul, let me tell you why he won't be trivia. Because God was through him doing what Moses prays for God to do here. Establish the work of our hands. And that work, that work was a work to preach and proclaim and lift up the name of the one true God. Moses is not a piece of historical trivia. Why not? Why not? Now, I'm not preaching a sermon here to try to tell you how to be more significant because I think that runs almost contrary to the nature of everything that we're saying here. But just for fun as a thought exercise, if we wanted to talk about how to have a significant life, let me tell you how to have a significant life. Live your life to the glory of the one true God and your life will have significance. Your life will bear fruit into eternity. Your life will count for something. Right now counts forever. For R.C., for you and me, if our lives are lived to the glory of God. And last, God is a redeemer. We've got to put it in the right context. You're not more important than He is. Because He is important. And because He reveals Himself as the forgiver of sinners. He's the kind of God that we sang about. That says come and welcome. We say God's free bounty glorify. What does it mean to glorify God's free bounty? It means that God has something free. His bounty is all of His treasure and His riches. He wants to give it to sinners. And it glorifies Him as the God of Redemption when He does it. God is ready because of Christ, because Christ came into the world. God is ready to forgive us and to wipe away our sins and to make us new and to make our lives count for something. Not because we're good. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all, the song says. Don't, you don't have to wait until you're better because there's never going to be a better enough. The summary statement about humanity is misery and death. That's not going to be changing anytime soon. And yet, God says don't wait until you've fixed yourself up. Don't wait until you've uh, 
made yourself better, come and welcome. He is ready. I don't know if we sing the verse that says that. I, 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 I should have been paying more attention. I was thinking about preaching. There's a verse to that same hymn where he says, He is ready. He is able. Doubt no more. God is ready to forgive our sins. He is able to forgive our sins. You don't have to be afraid. Let's pray and, 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 and we'll, we'll wrap up here. God, we thank you so much that we have the privilege of serving a God like you and knowing a God like you and being redeemed by a God like you. And, and, and we acknowledge that our lives only matter in as much as we live for you and your glory. God, help us to do it. Help us to live lives that matter because you matter. Help us to live lives that reflect you. We were made in your image to reflect you. God, restore us to that image through this gospel and through this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Pastor Matt Castro with Redeemer Fellowship Church. Thanks for listening to one of our sermon podcasts. If you're interested in more information about Redeemer Fellowship Church, check us out online at evansvillechurch.com. We meet for worship every Sunday at 11.15 a.m. at 7501 Hogue Road, Evansville, Indiana, zip code 47712. Thank you again for listening to one of our sermon podcasts.